Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. motives. We're so glad that you're joining us today. We are so happy that our listeners are so loyal and they keep coming back. You guys are really the best. We also love hearing from you guys on our social medias, so feel free to continue to comment on the posts that we share or reach out and send us a message. Absolutely. It brightens our day and makes it all worthwhile talking about these dirtbags. It's true. (laughs) Sometimes you need a little brightness when you're talking about dirtbags. I have noticed that my TV choices have changed since doing the podcast. I watch more lighthearted things than I used to. It can't all be dark all of the time. It's so true. And today we're going to go on another wild ride with a crazy twisted case. Oh man, are we going dark? We're going selfish today. Oh, I hate the selfish ones. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever experienced a rumor mill? Oh, absolutely. Getting all the juicy gossip? And most of the time it's harmless, especially when it happens at work. If you're just passing the day, musing about the gossip circulating amongst your coworkers. Yeah, I've heard sayings where you become good friends with your coworkers because you're trauma bonding over like the people you're working for. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you about a case today where the gossip at the office actually caught a murderer. What? Mm-hmm. At the end of 1982 in Keene, New Hampshire, the gossip was a little more titillating than normal. And it just wasn't something that the employee that the Central Screw Corporation could let go. Oh, man. This group of employees just had to get to the bottom of what they were hearing. And their deep dig would lead them to a murderer. I can just picture all these people at the water cooler and just, oh, did you hear this? Did you hear this? And trying to piece it all together. Mm -hmm. And that's what they did. This is quite an anomaly, I would think, in the true crime world. Mm -hmm. I can't help but think. This is a workplace that we would love to be in. (laughs) Full of busybodies and conspiracy. (laughs) And solving crimes. Yeah, that would be pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. Two years prior to 1982, the company had hired a new employee, Lindsay Robbie Hannon, a sweet, genteel woman, the epitome of Southern charm, who went by her middle name, Robbie. She was a beautiful woman with a life full of tragedy, but was making the most of it. She had lost her first husband and two children in a tragic car accident in Texas. Oh, no. I can't imagine having your whole family taken out at once like that. How tragic. It would have been so sad. Following the accident, she had moved to Fort Lauderdale, Florida at the age of 35 to start a new life. There, she met John Homan, a 33-year-old owner of a boat building business in February of 1980. The two quickly bonded over their past hurts. John had lost his alcoholic mother when he was young and had grown up into a shy, awkward man. He was recently divorced and was taken in by Robbie's confidence. Robbie had a way about her. She was warm and motherly, and at the same time, she was also dripping with feminine wiles. And as a cherry on top, her past made her a damsel in distress that John needed to save. And that just matched up with his personality perfectly. They were the perfect match. Robbie was able to care for the successful businessman and live a life of comfort. And for John, Robbie pumped up his bruised ego. He had just been divorced. He took care of her and got to be her knight in shining armor. That she was a charming, beautiful career woman herself was the cincher. 
It wasn't long before the two of them had moved in together in March and then married on May 29th in 1981. Okay, so it was like a year and two months, not just two months. Yeah, it was the next year. In October, the couple moved to New Hampshire to start a new life together, to be closer to John's brother. They settled in Marlowe and rented a tiny house, and it was then that Robbie came to work at the Central Screw, working in customer service. She was a great asset to the team. She was efficient at her job and added a little spark to the office with her personality and her stories. She told them of her tragic past, her newfound love interest, an inheritance waiting for her in Texas, and her beloved twin sister with whom she had a strong bond with. But Robbie's life wasn't all sunshine and roses. As she became a regular in the office and in her new life, her co-workers learned that she suffered from a rare blood disorder that would often leave her plagued with severe headaches. As her condition grew worse, those around her grew worried about her. She was having to take longer and longer periods of time off work to go to specialist appointments, but nothing seemed to work. In consultation with her sister Terry, Robbie decided that she would travel back to Texas to seek a second opinion. John wasn't able to leave his work for an extended period of time, but Robbie assured her concerned husband that her sister would take good care of her. In September of 1982, Robbie left Marlowe seeking out a life-saving treatment in Texas. Robbie never returned. What? On the 10th of November, Teresa Martin, who went by Terry, called and informed her sister's husband that she had passed away. The doctors in Texas hadn't been able to do anything to save her. So was she saying that she passed away from her illness? Yeah, that she had succumbed to her illness. Wow. But she hadn't called to tell John at all that she was that close to death. Yeah. And it didn't seem like she was on death's door when she left. Or I'm sure he would have made sure he went with her. It was a little suspicious. Yeah. John was beside himself with grief after losing his wife, and he was grateful that Terry had handled all the details of her sister's death. She had told him that he didn't need to worry about a thing, that Robbie had left a letter of instructions in case she did die, and Terry had carried them out. This sounds a little suspicious. Whenever someone says, don't worry about it, I'll take care of everything. Mm, will you now? Why? <laughs> It's hard to do things for Christine. <laughs> like, Christy, don't worry. I got it. I got all dinner prepared. <laughs> like, what's your ulterior motive? <laughs> but in this case, John was really grateful because he was in a state of shock that this had all happened. So when Terry swooped in and said, don't worry, I've got it all. I've taken care of it. He was like, oh, thank goodness. Yeah. And she's her twin sister. So he would have known how close they were. Yeah. They talked all the time on the phone. For hours, Robbie would be sitting at home talking to Terry every day. So okay. they were close. So he trusted that Terry would know what Robbie wanted. Right. Terry let John know that one of the things that Robbie had put in her letter was that her one regret was that the two of them hadn't gotten to meet while she was alive. In their whirlwind romance, they hadn't taken the time to really meet each other's families. So the two made arrangements to meet and share their grief. The next day, Terry made a trip to see her sister's husband in New Hampshire, where together they would finish taking care of all of Robbie's business. Like funeral arrangements and stuff. Well, there was no funeral. Oh. Robbie had chosen to donate her body to science. Oh, okay. So there was no funeral, but they did place an obituary in the local newspaper, the Keen Sentinel, and gradually they made the rounds to tell Robbie's friends of her passing. So they did that all together. Okay. The people at Robbie's work were just as shocked to learn about their friend's passing. Yeah. And I'm really suspicious about the donating to science. Did she decide that before or is that just what Terry said and she's trying to get rid of any evidence? Well, Terry had said that Robbie had left a letter. Okay. And you think she really did leave this letter? 
your suspicions are well-placed because even Robbie's co-workers thought that this was a little weird. And what was even more shocking to them was watching the interaction between her and the recently widowed John. The two had been staying at the same house together and they were helping each other grieve. You made a face when you said helping. <laughs> yeah. Could you see my air quotes? <laughs> yeah. They were soothing each other in more ways than one. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. Trauma bonding is a real thing. Yeah, but this is your sister's husband. Yeah, and it's a few days after. Yeah, this isn't months and years later. Mm-hmm. Ay, ay, ay. And so Robbie's co-workers are like, what is up? And they also noticed some really suspicious things about Terry herself. As Terry and John settle into a routine living together, the rumor mill at Central Screw was in full force. Not only was it looked down upon that John had taken up with Robbie's sister so fast, but there was just something about Terry Martin that was not right. There are a lot of studies done on twins and how they have a connection that almost defies understanding. Their mannerisms, the way they communicate can often be so intertwined and unique that the dyad is a marvel to those around them. But these similarities between Robbie and her twin sister Terry were beyond anything like that. And this had the rumor mill and the imaginations running wild. Oh, I bet. While Terry was more slender than Robbie had been, and she sported a more modern style in her blonde hair than Robbie had worn on her brunette locks, there was just something about them that made people uneasy. They shared all the same mannerisms, and their skills were almost identical. It was almost like they were the same person. And this is the conclusion that a lot of people around town were coming to. That it wasn't actually her twin sister that she had faked her own death? Yes. Really? Mm-hmm. Is that what happened? Yeah. No way. Was she faking the illness? Yes. What? I did not see this coming. John, of course, did not believe any of this, which meant actually that he still believed that he was now sleeping with his dead wife's twin sister. He was okay with that fact. So she's seducing him and being like, mm, my husband's moving on to my sister in like 2.4 seconds. Yep. He would later describe traits in their personality that led him to believe that the two of them were different people. Robbie had been a little bit more of an introvert, always wanting to lie low. Terry was outgoing and vivacious. And so he said that these things were different about them. He would talk about how Robbie just wanted to read all the time. She never wanted to watch the news. And Terry was all about like, what's up and coming? I want to be out in public. And so he said their personalities weren't alike. So she had obviously evolved as a person. Like she was giving off this totally different persona. Mm -hmm. In these six weeks that she had left him saying that she was going to get treatment in Texas, she had huh. become this new person. And that's why the body was quote unquote donated to science because there was no body. That's right. And this is what the people at the office are figuring out. Because with any of John's explanations, it did not stop the speculation. It grew. And as it does in a rumor mill, people started to develop theories to explain their musings. Well, this is juicy. Mm -hmm. Like juicy, juicy gossip. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So people start looking for evidence to support their theories. The problem was, is that there wasn't a lot of evidence to confirm them. Just as curiously, there wasn't actually a lot of evidence to support Terry's story either. Well, what's so bizarre about this is... Who fakes their own death just to come back and live the same life? It is shocking. Like, I can see, okay, I'm going to fake my death and then move to the Bahamas and start a totally new life with nobody from my past. But why pretend to die and come back as your 
quote unquote twin sister just to hook back up with your husband and get right back into the thick of what you were just doing? Well, I want to leave that question until the very end, because I think once you've heard the whole story, you might come to the same conclusion that I did about why this happened. Oh, man. But first, you have to know everything else that happens. (laughs) I'm intrigued. I'm right there at the water cooler with my little (laughs) cup. (laughs) Give me the tea, girl. (laughs) I'm ready. So this is what the people in the office did. The employees used the information that was placed in the obituary to start fact-checking John and Terry's story. The first tip-off came when it was noticed that the obituary listed Robbie's name as Robbie L. Homan. The HR rep knew that Robbie had gone by her middle name and that her first name had been Lindsay. So the L shouldn't have been placed in the middle initial spot. Yeah, but she would have known that because it was her own name. What? The wannabe investigators tried to track down the hospital to which Robbie's body had been supposedly given to, the Medical Research Institute of Texas. No such place existed. Oh. The same was true about the church to which the obituary stated Robbie had belonged in Texas. They could also not find any obituaries or coroner's reports in the Dallas area around the date of November 10th, the day that Robbie supposedly had died. This is wild. Do you not think we would fit right in at this office, though? Oh, yeah. We would have a chart made. (laughs) (laughs) So true. Holy cow. For all their digging, only more questions resulted. So they took their findings to their manager, and the rumor mill spun and grew. (laughs) Can you imagine you take it to your manager? Why don't take it to the police? (laughs) Well, on January 4th, 1983... The police were involved and started looking into the case of the suspicious twin sisters. Police were also unable to find a lot of collaborating information about Terry's story. Terry Martin seemed to have appeared out of thin air on September 23rd in Pompano Beach, Florida, when she had gotten her hair done and had met with an employment agent. For the next six weeks, she worked in a secretarial position at the Solar Testing Service, While she worked there, she had told her boss, Jack McKenzie, about her twin sister, Robbie, who had recently suffered a stroke and then developed cancer. It was a tragic situation, and Jack wasn't surprised when Terry left in mid-November, saying that she had to travel to New Hampshire because her sister had died and she was planning to stay in New Hampshire. Did she really have a twin sister? No, it's the same person. Your original guess was right. Okay, but I'm a little confused because this is Terry, like as Terry that you're talking about. Yeah, but she only appeared when Robbie left. Okay. So Robbie left to go to Texas, said that she was in Texas, and then a few days after she left, Terry appears. Okay, so she's just left and is now assuming the identity of Terry. That's right. Does she actually have a twin sister named Terry or she doesn't even have a twin? She doesn't even have a twin. Oh. Scandal. All of this was fishy enough to pique the police curiosity further, and the local department reached out to the state police. Originally, it was suspected by the police that Terry might be the wanted bank robber, Carol Manning, who <laughs> shared similar physical features, but that was ruled out pretty quickly. <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm just laughing because it's so absurd, all of this already. And then it's like, maybe she's a bank robber. <laughs> well, Next, they suspect that she might be a federal fugitive, Terry Lynn Clifton. I wasn't able to find out what she was wanted for, but the police believed this theory enough that they started trailing Terry as she went about her life and started her new job in Brattleboro, Vermont, a short commute from John and Robbie's house. On January 12th, the police felt that they had enough evidence to bring Terry in for questioning. Yeah, that's even wild to me. Like, do they not see that she looks identical 
to Robbie? Mm-hmm. How can she be some total random third person if she looks identical to Robbie? Because they looked into Robbie's background and Robbie just kind of appeared out of nowhere in 1980. So maybe they're both aliases. Terry was apprehended outside of Book Press, a printing company where she had been working as a secretary. When the police asked her to join them for a conversation at the station because they had reason to believe that she was someone other than she claimed to be, she just went along. She didn't fringe shock, but simply agrees to be taken in for questioning. Resigned like her goose is cooked. Oh. At the station, after being advised of her constitutional rights, she admits that Terry Martin isn't her real name. She surprises everyone when she says her real name is Audrey Marie Hilly. And the reason that she's been living under a false name is that she's wanted in Alabama for writing bad checks. All of this for writing bad checks? Well, after supplying her birth date and other identifying information, the New Hampshire State Police run the facts, and they find that she is telling them the truth. She is wanted in Alabama. But for a little bit more than writing bad checks, she's wanted for murder. Oh my, that's a big jump from writing bad checks. Yeah, just a little part of the truth she failed to omit. <laughs> Marie Hilly was born Audrey Marie Frazier to Huey and Lucille Frazier in Blue Mountain, Alabama on June 4th, 1933, a little over a year after her parents had been married. She would go by her middle name for her whole life, and she was raised as an only child. With all the cliches that come along with being an only child. Mm. Huey and Lucille were not overly wealthy, but they were hard workers. Especially Lucille, who returned to work shortly after Marie was born to the Linen Thread Company. This was during the Great Depression, and having a paying job was a coveted thing that helped ensure your family's survival. So she wasn't taking any chances. Oh, yeah. Marie's parents were committed to providing the proper life for their daughter, despite the conditions around them. While Lucille and Huey were described as caring, the majority of their care came in the form of things. Marie always had the best of everything, and it came at the expense of her parents' time. Lucille worked long hours, and the care for Marie fell mostly on Lucille's mother, Susie Meads, and other extended family members. During the times when her parents were away at work, she would spend time with her cousins and grew close to her older cousin, Robbie. For the most part, her cousins adored her and would cater to her whims and all of her wishes. Marie was a pretty little girl who knew how to work a room, and it was said that she took after her father's sweet temperament and had a winning personality. Okay, <laughs> but we know she's not going to stay that way. <laughs> Though she appeared to be delicate, she was anything but. She had a fierce temper when it came to not getting her own way. Because she was raised probably getting her own way as an only child. Oh, absolutely. You don't have to compete with anybody for anything. And not to bad talk about only children, but it's just a different way of growing up. It is. There's no competition. Yeah. Possibly as a result of her parents always doting on her and buying her whatever she wanted, Marie began to expect that the rest of the world would treat her the exact same way. She believed that she was special and deserved their attention and admiration. So she was entitled. Mm-hmm. In 1945, when she entered seventh grade, her parents moved her from Blue Mountain into Anniston, an area that they considered more well-to-do. The move would allow Marie to attend school with more affluential people. To make sure their daughter fit in amongst her new peers, they made sure that Marie was always dressed in the latest fashions. Marie learned at a very early age that dressing the part and associating with the right people was a very important thing to do. 
which gave her catfishing skills for later. Uh Uh-huh. When she started Quinter Junior High School, away from the safety net of her family and cousins, Marie was thrown into a new world to charm. She learned with her pretty looks and her personality dripping in honey that with the bat of her eyelashes, she could bring a whole bunch of admirers. Oh. The boys flocked to be around her, and all the girls wanted to be like her because she had this skill. She was pretty and well-dressed, and by the end of the seventh grade, she had been chosen as the prettiest girl in Quintard by the Aniston High School yearbook staff. (laughs) So all the older kids. She was already being noticed by the older kids, yeah. She joined the student council and was serious about her studies, earning a reputation for maturity and intelligence beyond her years. This was when she met Frank Hilly. Over the years, he would become completely smitten with Marie. Frank was from a good family in Anniston, and he was hardworking and a loving boy. This time she spent in Anniston was a really formative time for Marie. She was in a new social group and having to figure out pretty much all of it on her own because her parents worked full of time and now she no longer had her cousins to kind of help her navigate the world. Grandma Meads was the only one that had ever really guided or disciplined her as a child and she became very ill and in 1947 Marie lost the one person who had been the only constant in her life. Her grandma. Aww. It was a real big time of change in her life. When Marie moved to Aniston High School, Marie found that she was no longer the big fish in a little pond, but that her social status made her a very small fish in a big pond. She met the challenge wholeheartedly, though, and after a quick study of her opponents, she chose a girl to start to emulate. The other girl had the attention and love that Marie so desperately wanted. She was everything that Marie had tried so hard to be. So Marie joined the same clubs as this girl, she dressed the same way, and mimicked all of her mannerisms. Marie became a chameleon and began to fit right in with the right crowd. And once again, in that crowd, she started to be noticed again in the bigger pond. Mimicry would be a constant tactic in Marie's life. She would ensure that her dress and lifestyle allowed her to be in the limelight. But it would later go past just dressing as someone else or styling her hair the same way. She would eventually start to pull out aspects of their lives and adopt them as her own. Well, it seems like she doesn't even know who she is then. She has no central identity of her own. She's just imitating what she sees around her. Right. She's been given these values that money and affluence are the most important things. Huh. And how beautiful you are and how people look at you. That's right. She joined the commercial club, a group for the business women of the future, as the yearbook put it, where she learned secretarial skills that would make her different from all the other girls in her classes. While everybody else was taking home ec, she was taking typing skills. In the 1950s, that's a huge thing. That really is. Mm -hmm. It was the cutting edge of pre-liberation. She didn't present herself as a flighty girl, just out for fun. She wanted to be taken seriously and to be considered by her peers as a student of depth. Sometimes to maintain the limelight, Marie would embellish her experiences. And those embellishments would get bigger and bigger. She also learned the kinds of things that kept people's attention. While in high school, she started to tell stories about the neglect that she had suffered as a child and the abuse that she had endured at her grandmother's hands. All of this was adamantly denied by every other member of her family. It sounds like Marie just misconstrued discipline for abuse. And she's an attention seeker, clearly, so she has to embellish to make people's heads turn. Right. And I just think it's so sad to think that Her closest relationship was one that she was willing to tarnish. 
she didn't have enough love and respect for her grandma that had cared for her to leave her out of her lies. She actually used her memory to create a bigger story for herself. That's a dirtbag move. It is. Marie would continue to insist that she was a victim as she spread the story around to her friends all in hushed whispers. One of the people that she chose to often confide into was Frida Hilly, Frank's younger sister. By this time, Marie and Frank were pretty much a steady couple, and Frida often got to accompany them on their dates as a chaperone. Marie would tell Frida made-up stories about things that had happened to her based on family histories and stories that she had heard other family members talking about. She took aspects of other people's lives and wove them into her own to gain attention from Frida about all the things that she had endured. So she's quite the storyteller. Yeah, she's definitely a storyteller. When Frank finished high school, he joined the Navy and was shipped off to Guam. He returned on leave near the end of Marie's junior year. And out of fear that he might lose her to another boy, Frank proposed. The young couple had just been to a wedding of Frank's friends, and it seemed so magical and romantic. Marie agreed to get married at the age of 17. Whoa, love was in the air. Mm-hmm. They were married actually the very next night. What? It was super quick. That was pretty strong love in the air, I must say. She was just so taken by all the attention that the bride had received. Yeah, but you would think you'd want to spread that out into like bridal showers and getting everything ready and dress shopping. Nope. She just wanted it all. So on May 8th, 1951, in Aniston, Frank and Marie were married. And shortly after, Frank returned to the service. The newlyweds figured out life pretty quickly in Long Beach, California, where Frank was stationed next. Marie got a job as a secretary at attorney's office, and she learned what it was like to have her own money to spend. And she liked this feeling. She would become a compulsive spender that wouldn't be limited to what was in her bank account. That's a dangerous game to play. Mm -hmm. Spending was a way to ensure that she had the things that provided her with status and attention. So it sounds like she has this emptiness in her that she's just trying to fill in whatever means possible. Oh, yeah. But she can't really form any true relationships. After Frank's military service was complete, the family returned to Anniston and welcomed their first child, a son, Michael, into their lives on November 11, 1952. At first, Marie stayed home to care for Michael, but she soon tired of the life of a homemaker and yearned to return to the life of a career woman, where she received the attention and money that she so craved. By the time that their second child came around, a little girl named Carol Marie, on January 14, 1960, Marie's pattern of overspending and needing to be the center of attention was a well-cemented routine. Oh, no. The people who are always like, look at me, look at me. That's hard to surround yourself with. It can be exhausting. It is. Mm -hmm. I'm exhausted just hearing about this lady. And that's what led people to believe that this kind of lifestyle drove Frank to drink. Instead of coming home from his supervising job at the Stanford Foundry, he would stop off at the Elks Club and drink. This progressively got worse. And I'm sorry, but you can't blame your wife for your drinking problem. No, I think he was struggling with his whole life right now. He wasn't a raging alcoholic. He was always viewed well by colleagues as being fair and even tempered. And he must have done well at his jobs because over the years he would be promoted several times. Unlike Marie, who would often have to find new employment because she was unable to get along with co-workers despite her work skills or personal relationships with her bosses. 
Okay. She's uh-huh. a handful. Mm-hmm. She just needed to be the center of attention all the time. Yeah. And so in an office, that would create catty feelings. Yeah, I'm better than you kind of a thing. Right. But Frank's drinking would play a big role in their marriage. Marie viewed it as a stain against the image that she was trying to present to the world. She spent a lot of time and money cultivating the image of her family, an image that she valued more than the feelings of others that she stepped on to get to higher social statuses. So there were several friends that would say that Marie just used them to make connections with people that she felt were more influential. There was one incident told by their son, Mike, about Marie purposely trying to run Frank over one night after finding him very drunk at the club. What? Yeah. Apparently, cracks in their relationship must have already started because Mike recalls his father, after puking in a bush, lying down on the road and screaming at Marie just to put him out of his misery as Marie was bringing the car around to take them home. Oh my goodness. Mike felt that his mom did accelerate the car, but luckily a passerby was able to pull his father out of the road before anything could happen. So she was going to run him over. That's what her son felt like. Oh, and what a terrible thing for a son to realize about his mother. Mm -hmm. Well, apparently Marie had to bring Mike along to pick Frank up because he was too drunk to drive home. And she was ticked because not only was that bad enough, but he had made this big spectacle outside of the club puking in the bushes. Right. So she was in a rage. And Frank was in such a state that he was just willing to die. (laughs) He's like, just put me out of my misery. Run me over. So he laid down in the road for her to do it. But probably joking. How many times do we say stuff like that? But do you really mean it? Probably not. Well, I don't think he wanted to be run over, but I do think that he was regretting his life's choices. Right. But use some common sense. Like if you say like, oh, smack me or pinch me, you don't really mean smack me or pinch me, let alone run me over with your vehicle. But Mike felt that his mother did accelerate because she was so embarrassed by his father's public drunkenness. Oh. Well, she obviously was because the guy had to literally pull him away or he would have been run over. Yeah. Wow. And they stay together after this? They do. (laughs) It was only years later that Mike recalled the event with a new lens that he saw the breakdown in his parents' relationship. Wow. How scary for a little kid to witness that. Yeah. Mommy almost ran daddy over. It would be such a bizarre event to see. Yeah. Marie was very controlling at home with Frank and with the children. Not in an abusive way, but in a manipulative one. She played the victim in her home, frequently telling friends and family members that nobody really cared for her or about her whenever anybody decided to do something contrary to what she wanted. Ugh. If Frank raised concerns about the newest redecorating or vehicle that Marie wanted to buy, She would raise a fuss about him not wanting her to have the nice things because she didn't deserve it. Eventually, Frank would submit, probably at first because he really did love his wife. But later, I'm suspecting that he probably gave in to avoid the fight because Marie was relentless in her pursuit for more things. Oh, these type of people are so hard to have relationships with. I can really feel for Frank in this story. Oh, yeah. Mike and Carol were considered by others to be very polite children and very well behaved. They wanted for nothing as their mother made sure they had the best of everything money could buy. Marie was never a consistent parent with discipline or the attention that she gave her children. She would be hyper-focused on their every action and decision one moment and then leave them to their own devices the next. 
Huh. It's almost like she grew tired of having to deal with them. So she would just go on with her own pursuits for long periods of time. Yeah, sorry, but that's not what motherhood is. No. Like her own parents, though, her love was not shown in quality time, but material things. Really, she didn't show a lot of emotion towards her children at all, beyond how their lives related to her own emotions. Hmm. It seemed that she didn't really view them as individuals, but more as an extension of the image that she tried to create of herself. When she did spend time with them, she particularly adored her son. He really could do no wrong in her eyes. Carol was a slightly different story, though. Marie expected a great deal from her daughter. She expected her to be the social climber that Marie aspired to be. Unfortunately for this mother-daughter relationship, it seemed that the two of them just couldn't be any more different. While Marie enjoyed the fine things and dressing up, Carol was considered a tomboy and wanted nothing to do with dresses or making the proper friends. Carol was a daddy's girl, much to Marie's chagrin. From a young age, Carol was defiant towards Marie's pressures to be like her, and this only grew as she reached into her teenage years. Well, it sounds disastrous. Yeah. There were some rumors that the relationship between Marie and Carol might have been even more tense because there were some rumors that she was a lesbian. Okay. When Mike moved away to college during his second year in 1972, finding it too difficult to live under his mom's thumb anymore, Marie's attention was even more focused on Carol. After Mike married a woman, Terry, at college, it only became worse. Wait, she's going to use her daughter-in-law's name, Terry? She couldn't even think of one on her own? No, she uses all of these names from her past. Like her best friend growing up and her cousin was named Robbie. Oh. And she uses her name. And that's what I mean. She takes little pieces from everybody's life around her and she kind of weaves it into a story that suits her needs that will get her the attention she wants. Yeah, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that I would want to call myself my son's girlfriend's name. That's a little weird. It is a little weird. But I feel that Marie was really envious of the attention that Terry got from her son because Marie was really attached to Mike. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I think that could be a reason why she chose that name. It is an interesting choice for a name, though. But she would, through her aliases, always choose a name of somebody that she had had a relationship with. Maybe so she could remember it easier. (laughs) Maybe. But when Mike got married to Terry, it became really difficult for Carol because now she was the sole focus of her mother's attention. And Marie would go through these periods of being hyper-focused and having to control every aspect of her children's lives. Carol would take refuge from Marie's nagging and disappointment in Frank's fatherly attention. He would take her out golfing and fishing. For Marie, this just did not sit well because neither of these were ladylike pursuits. Oh, So it wasn't just about Frank spending time with his daughter. It was what they were doing. Yeah. They were picking all these activities that Marie did not approve of. Okay. But this is still 60s or early 70s? Yeah. It's the early 70s. So Carol wanted to wear pants and Marie wanted her to wear skirts. Okay. I never really thought of it, but I can see how maybe the whole women's rights and all that kind of stuff may have ruffled some feathers between daughters and mothers. Oh, yeah, because Marie would have been brought up to believe that this is just what women do. Yeah. And it would almost be like undermining what they had done and what she had put her life's pursuits towards to have somebody say, well, no, I'm not doing that. Yeah. It went against her version of what women should be doing. That's right. But losing control of her family and finances had Marie withdrawing from life altogether. 
She would pass the time reading fiction novels and bury her head in the sand instead of dealing with real life. By 1973, Marie's world was unraveling. She and her mother Lucille, who had come to live with her after Marie's father had passed away, had racked up a whole bunch of spending accounts all over town and had taken out several small loans without Frank's knowledge. Marie opened a secret mailbox in town so that Frank wouldn't see any of these bills. But it was only a matter of time before he figured out their money situation. In 1974, Frank clued in to some of the money problems that Marie had created, and he took a much more foot-down approach with her, which created even more trouble between the couple. Frank, not one to usually talk about his trouble at home, began to open up to a few people, his son being one of them. But these conversations would only be put into context after Frank's death. Things were not going well with Frank and Marie's marriage. And Frank was telling people about it. So she's actually going to kill Frank this time. Mm -hmm. That's when Frank began to get sick. When he started to open up and tell people that they were having trouble in their marriage and he didn't know what to do, he didn't know how to control Marie's spending, he began to get sick. She's poisoning him. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Frank's friends started noticing that Frank wasn't his usual self. He complained of on and off again fevers and terrible headaches. During one bout of illness, Frank returned home to find Marie in bed with her boss. <gasps> Remember how I said that she was always well-liked by her employers, but not so much by her co-workers? Oh, no. She liked the extra attention. Oh, yeah. She was getting more perks than one that way. Mm-hmm. Oh. So he doesn't even know that he's sick because of his wife, but then he comes home and finds her in bed with her boss. Yep. Could you be more of a cliche? Not at all. But the knowledge of this dirty little secret was something that Marie was eager to keep hidden. Frank's health began to deteriorate rapidly. What started out as minor bouts of weakness and nausea and vomiting soon turned to something different. At first, Frank believed it was just something he ate. But when it persisted, they thought that maybe it might even be contaminated water at work. Oh my goodness. By May 1975, he reached out to a doctor during an acute attack of his illness. The doctor figured it was just the stomach flu and that it would pass, but it didn't. Within a week, Frank was admitted to the hospital with delirium. Marie said that she had found him outside in his underwear at 3.30 in the morning, wandering around. She had brought him into the hospital because she was so concerned for her husband. Oh my gosh, and all along knowing that she caused his sickness. Mm -hmm. It's such a dirtbag way to kill somebody, really. It's not violent per se, but it's torturous. It's so torturous to see somebody die that way and watch them suffer, somebody that you are supposed to love, and you just continually keep poisoning them. Yeah, the father of your children. And it also just shows how malicious somebody is when they poison because it's a slow process. It's not a quick decision. You're in a fight. You stab somebody. No. You're carefully planning this and allowing it to take place over a certain amount of time. Yeah, you're absolutely committed to what you're doing. Yeah. And you're watching it happen before your eyes. Oh, it makes you such a dirtbag. Mm -hmm. Well, what made her even more of a dirtbag was that throughout his illness, Marie played the part of the concerned wife and the victim of such horrible circumstances. Oh, yeah. It would give her the attention that she seeks. Which she loved. Oh, Frank was diagnosed with infectious hepatitis as his organs failed, and he actually died the next day on May 25th after she had taken him to the hospital. Oh. His death was noticed when Mike, 
returned to the hospital to see him because Mike had a nagging suspicion that he just needed to see his dad. Oh, but he didn't make it there in time. No. Upon realizing his father had passed away, he woke Marie, who was sleeping in the corner, exhausted from watching over her husband all night long. Oh my gosh. Poor Frank. He was only 45. So after finding Marie with her boss, he stayed? He stayed with her. Because he was so sick? I'm not sure what went into his thinking. I just think it was a time where people didn't really get divorced. Oh, that's so sad. So he knew like his last days on earth too would have been so distraught over knowing that his wife was cheating on him. Mm -hmm. That's really sad. It is sad. There are indications that Frank knew he was going to die. He set up his own burial. So he knew what was happening to him. He didn't know that she was poisoning him, but he knew that he was going to die. Okay. Because of the suddenness of his death, an autopsy was requested and Marie consented to have it done on Frank. The doctors requested? Mm Mm-hmm. The autopsy came back with the results that it was hepatitis. What? Frank had swelling of the kidneys and lungs, bilateral pneumonia, and an inflammation of the stomach and duodenum. All pointed to the diagnosis that had been given of infectious hepatitis. No test for arsenic poisoning was ever conducted. The effects of arsenic poisoning and the symptoms of infectious hepatitis are very similar. The thought of poisoning never crossed anyone's minds because Marie played her role of the grieving widow so well. With her perfect woe is me in her southern accent, she was the epitome of a damsel in distress. Now at the age of 42, Marie was left with a significant life insurance policy from Provident Living and Accident Insurance Company of almost $32,000, which today works out to be almost $175,000. Okay. Plus, because Frank had sensed the end of his life was near, he had taken out a death benefit to cover funeral expenses. And Marie would also continue to receive a $5,000 a year payment from his military pension. This was all enough to pay off all of her debts and start spending again. Oh, no. She paid off her mortgage and all of her other little debts that she had racked up on all of her department store credit cards. She bought a new car and went on a shopping spree for clothes, jewelry, and new furniture. Yeah, you're not acting like you're grieving there, lady. No, but retail therapy can be really good for grief, right? For some people, it is really a therapy. Mm -hmm. But it's so infuriating that she's gaining so much by killing her husband. Yes. Interestingly, nobody noticed she had stopped making payments on all of her loans three weeks before Frank's death. Because she knew it was coming. That's right. She knew she was going to have a lump sum just to pay them all off. So why pay any more on them? But you can see why nobody would suspect that he was poisoned to death. No, she had a lot of people fooled. Yeah. But money wasn't enough to fix Marie's life. Her spending habit would land her in deep water again. And it didn't fix her need for attention or the fact that she still had to deal with other people not following her chosen storyline. Her mother, Lucia, was diagnosed with cancer a week after Frank's passing, and she became a burden for Marie, cramping her style and taking attention away from the grieving widow. Carol in her grief was as defiant as ever, probably because she needed some emotional support after losing her father. But Marie was incapable of providing anything because she was so wrapped up in her own drama. Mike was too busy caring for his new expectant wife to be concerned for his mother. So Marie began to complain to Mike about receiving prank calls and being afraid to stay at the house alone because she feared intruders would break in when she wasn't there. So how does Marie solve all of these problems? She convinces Mike that he and Terry should move in with her 
so that he can start out his ministry practice in the town where he grew up. She is such a manipulator. Holy cow. Mm -hmm. She convinced Mike that if they moved in with her, Mike could protect her, provide guidance for her sister, and Terry could help with the care of Lucille. And as a perk for them, they could save money to buy a house of their own. It was a win-win for everyone, especially Marie. Yeah, that totally speaks to her, her character to be jealous of the attention that her mom is getting for being sick. That says all we need to know about her right there in a nutshell. Yeah, there's a lot of times in the story that I'm like, does Munchausen's by proxy fit in with this? Right now I'm not seeing it, but maybe. When Mike and Terry move in, there are several personality clashes in this house. Marie and Lucille had always been hostile towards each other, and so had Marie and Carol. Frank had always been the mediator in those relationships. Now that Frank was gone, it was like battle royale. Throw in Terry, who was determined to establish her own routines as Mike's wife, and it was a recipe for disaster. Oh yeah, that's too many cooks in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, her plan to have Mike move back in didn't work out, despite Marie's efforts to keep everyone in her life playing the role that she wanted them to play. The first tragedy was the loss of Terry and Mike's unborn baby. Aww. Shortly after moving into the house, Terry started to get sick. It was believed that she had the same infectious hepatitis that Frank had had. The treatment was not compatible with her pregnancy. But before administering it, the treating doctor in Aniston wanted Terry to check with her OB. Marie said that she took the message from the OB that it was okay to proceed with the treatment, even though the doctor had said the exact opposite. And eventually oh. the baby would be lost. Oh my goodness. After that, Terry continued to suffer. She was hospitalized a total of four times. Terry would always recover while she was in the hospital away from Marie. The doctors attributed the recovery to the medication, but it was most likely due to the fact that Terry was out of Marie's reach and her cooking. So she was poisoning her too. The evidence isn't conclusive on this one because they never tested Terry for arsenic poisoning, but the events around her illnesses are highly suspicious. Yeah, I'd say. Terry and Mike eventually decided to move out and get their own apartment, believing that the atmosphere in the home was what was not good for Terry's health. Marie was not too happy about this. Mysteriously, <laughs> on the day that they moved out, Marie's house caught fire. Oh my gosh, she is the biggest drama queen ever. Mm -hmm. You're going to move out, I'm going to light my house on fire so I can stay the little victim in the damsel in distress and you'll have to help me. That's right. The house was able to be saved, but Marie, Carol, and Lucille all needed a place to stay during the renovations. So logically... They now all had to move into Mike and Terry's small apartment. Oh, she's wicked. And if that wasn't coincidence enough, what happens next is even more flabbergasting. The cause of Marie's house fire was never really determined, but Marie did pursue a civil lawsuit against the gas company, but her claims would never be substantiated. Ironically, though, when the house was ready to be moved back into, the apartment beside Mike and Terry's caught fire, and they were forced to find a new place. Conveniently, Marie now had a house that they could move back into. Oh my gosh. She just seems so unsuspecting. You're not going to suspect this woman to be killing people by poison and setting fires. No. Okay, so you set your own house on fire, and you collect the insurance money, and you get to move back in with your son, which is what you wanted because you want him in your life because he's your favorite. 
that's plausible. But now she's setting other people's houses on fire. To get what she wants. Mm -hmm. She doesn't think of anybody but herself. No, not at all. So anybody out there right now who thinks they have a bad (laughs) mother-in-law or a terrible mother, you need to take a look at Marie. Yeah. It's just so sad. Yeah. In January of 1976, Lucille passed away from cancer. Was it cancer or was it arsenic poisoning? So they do exhume her body in the future and they find that she did have arsenic in her system. But the official cause of death still remained cancer. Okay. But I'm sure the arsenic didn't help. Yeah. And there were high levels in her system. So it was more than just what would be a naturally occurring in her body. Eventually, Mike and Terry are able to get out of the house. They actually move out of the town. Good. But now, all alone with just Carol for company, Marie grew even more restless. Carol made it abundantly clear that she wasn't interested in her mother's influence in her life, despite Marie lavishing her with gifts that she couldn't really afford. At the same time, family and friends had moved on from thinking about her as the poor widow that had just lost her mom, and they weren't giving her the attention that she desired as well. So Marie began plaguing the police with phone call after phone call about things she found concerning. (laughs) She's terrible. She would call him about a prank phone call, or sometimes she thought people were rummaging through her drawers, or small items would be missing, or the smell of gas. All of these things Marie just kept phoning the police for. Because she knows that they'll respond and give her attention. That's right. When Marie got the impression that the police weren't taking her seriously... She made sure that there were things that they would have to follow up on, from coming up with a wild theory about a gambling bookie trying to collect Frank's outstanding debts, to prank calling her neighbor's house and setting small fires in her apartment to collaborate her claims with someone in the area trying to hurt them. For several of her claims, Marie would collect small insurance claims when something was destroyed or stolen. So she was getting her fix of both money and attention for this. By committing fraud. Mm Mm-hmm. And she was pulling in her neighbor so that then her neighbor would call into the police. So she wasn't the only one. So it was making a more believable story. She is out of control. She is. But this is just how she met her need for attention. This takes so much work and energy. If you just could put this into something positive in your life, you could be getting positive attention for the good things you're doing. It's so true. One of the things that she collected insurance for was a new car that Marie had bought Carol, trying to win her affection through material things. A car? Mm Mm-hmm. It went missing one day, presumably stolen, and turned up a few days later, having been caught on fire. So she stole the car? Mm Mm-hmm. Probably to get the insurance claim. That's right. Marie was happy to collect the insurance money for a car that she was already in arrears for paying for. And then it's a win-win for her because she still gets the brownie points that she actually bought it for her daughter. Yep. She is so conniving. Police at one point put tracers on her phone and her neighbors, but mysteriously, the caller would always stop when the tracers were on. When police pointed this out, two calls were placed. One to Marie's home that was from a phone booth just outside of Marie's house, and the other call that was able to be traced was to Marie's neighbor, and it came from Marie's workplace. Each of these calls would bring the police officer to her door to investigate. She would invite them in for coffee and treats as she told them about her latest concern. It's this lonely old lady, like, pranking the police just to, like, here, have some cookies and tea with me. But it's not just cookies and tea that she's going to offer up. This continued for years, and Marie got plenty friendly with some of the officers. (laughs) 
Oh, no. After all, she was this sweet, charming woman, and her looks were holding up. In her mid-40s, most people would peg her as 15 years younger. So now she's going to seduce the officers. Yeah, she seduces several of them and (gasps) develops relationships with several of them. What, they fall for it? Yes, because they're just cashing in on the perks that she's offering when they go to investigate these calls. So the call comes in and they're all like falling over themselves. I'll take it. I'll go. I'll go. (laughs) I got this one. Well, sometimes they were the exact opposite because her calls came in almost frequently, like every day that they would be so annoyed with it. They'd be like drawing straws to see which one had to go. But there were several officers on duty that she would call at night for complaints. And when she knew they were on shift, she would make sure that she called them or got them. So complaints, a.k.a. booty call. Yep. And whatever happened to the boss that she was sleeping with? Oh, she still has him on the side, too. (laughs) She is a busy lady. She is a busy lady. Holy cow. Interestingly, though, several police, after it's found out that she poisoned Frank to death, several of the police come forward and say that they had gotten quite sick after having coffee and cookies at her house. She's just poisoning everybody around her. Yeah. Does she think it's fun? Like, why is she doing this? It's almost like a compulsive nature for her. Huh. And a sense of control, maybe? Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. There were even friends of Carol's that had grown ill as well. Or neighborhood kids had come over and drank something at the house and then gotten sick. But you would never know. Like, you come over for a visit and you eat and you don't know that that's where it came from. Right. And a lot of these reports are unsubstantiated. So I didn't put in any names or times or anything like that. But there were reports that these things were happening. So eventually Marie decides to sell the family home because she's running out of money. She's still running up debt. She's overspending. Marie decided it would be best if she and Carol moved in with Mike and Terry, where they had moved to in Pompano Beach, Florida. But that only lasted a few months. They created a hostile environment in the couple's new life that they were starting with their new baby. And it didn't help that Marie ran up a significant tab on Mike's credit card without him knowing. What a dirtbag. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine doing that to your son who's... Just starting out with his new family and you're going to max out his credit cards. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. They had kept it in a drawer. They were just keeping it just in case for a rainy day. She found it and ran up charges on it. Wow. That's so bad. Mm -hmm. Most moms are wanting to help their kids out when they have a baby because you have all these extra expenses. Yeah. She only ever thought about herself. So Carol and Marie's time in Florida didn't last for too long. On her return to Anniston, Marie and Carol moved in with Frank's sister, Frida, and then they eventually move in with Frank's mother, Carrie Hilly. During this time period, Marie starts to rack up the insurance again. She insures herself and Mike for $25,000, but Carol, she insures for almost double in July of 1975. No way. And she didn't stop there. She bought house and auto insurance too. Once the insurance was in place, strange occurrences started happening again. Small fires and burglaries, cut phone lines, and Carrie Hilly became increasingly sick. No way. At this time, Marie was also subsidizing her $250 a week paycheck from her secretarial work with after-hours work as well. She began two lucrative affairs with affluent married men, playing on their sympathies and swindling money out of them. One was a childhood sweetheart that she told she was sick with cancer and needed money for treatment. He sent her $3,000 and his undying love. Oh my gosh. So now she's finding herself some sugar daddies on the side. Mm -hmm. And playing them off of each other. 
She would send both men letters full of promise and sexual tension, writing about the love they shared and how it could never be because these men were both married, so she was forced to move on with another man, one that she couldn't possibly love as much as them. (gasps) The drama! And how does she have time for all these men? Several police officers, these two guys, her boss, probably the milkman and the mailman. What is happening? (laughs) Well, not all of them were at the same time. There was a succession, but she definitely always had little pieces on the side. But she was using her looks and her sexuality to manipulate these people. Absolutely. Whatever she had, she was using it to get attention. And she was still creating these big stories to get attention from these men. Huh. Investigators would later point out that Marie used the same man's name in all of the letters to tease her lovers with. She used the name John Roman, which sounds an awful lot like John Hoffman, who she would later start a relationship with. Although John would deny ever meeting her before she took on the persona of Robbie. Yeah, that is a little suspicious. So there was some thought that maybe she knew John before she left Alabama. Okay, because this isn't during the time you can just get on a Google search and find somebody. No. Huh, interesting. Through all this, though, Marie continued to rack up huge debt. Some believe that she might even have had a gambling problem because it was really hard to track how much money she was taking in and losing. Others believe that she was trying to buy attention and love from those around her. When Carol moved out on her own, Marie bought her new furniture, trying to buy Carol's love and paying for it with a check that would later bounce. She and Carol were still always engaged in a battle of wills, and at some point in the spring of 1979, Carol began to have bouts of illness. And it's just so crazy to me. You're actually poisoning your daughter, but then you're going to go out and pretend to care about her and buy her all this furniture as a lavish present, even if it is with a bum check. It was all part of the facade that she was trying to present to the world of who she was. Right. But it really wasn't who she was at all. No. Marie flocked to Carol's side to play the ever-doting mother, there to cook for her daughter and help her with her medication, taking her to doctor's appointments. From April to August, Carol was admitted to hospital on four different occasions. When doctors couldn't find anything wrong, they started to believe that the nausea and vomiting, the on-and-off-again fevers and terrible headaches were all in Carol's head, that she suffered from an eating disorder, and that she was overcome by its effects. Carol, the once vibrant youth, was so ill and without hope that she actually tried to take her own life. Oh, no way. And I think this really speaks to how much of a dirtbag Marie was. What kind of mother would continue to poison your own child after seeing the effects that it was having on her? Was she just trying to keep her sick or was actually trying to kill her, do you think? For Frank, I think she was actually trying to kill him because he was tarnishing her image with Mike. I think that was her main motivation for that. And the insurance, of course. But I think for Carol, I think she was getting off on the attention that she was getting after, oh, look at poor Marie. Her husband died. Her mother died. Now her daughter's sick. Poor her. Look at what she has to deal with. Mm -hmm. And she did always create these stories about herself being ill as well. Okay. Carol was admitted to the psychiatric ward in Caraway Methodist Hospital in Birmingham. There, Marie could no longer cook for her daughter. Instead, she started to inject Carol with arsenic, telling Carol that it was for her nausea or sometimes for her muscle pain. The injections increased the concentration in Carol's system substantially, and she began to suffer tingling and partial paralysis from muscle weakness. Whoa. 
Carol told her daughter that the doctors had given her permission, but that she mustn't tell anybody about the injections because she got the medication from a neighbor who was a nurse, and she didn't want the neighbor to get into trouble. Carol believed her mother. After all, she was her mom, so she felt like she was doing the right thing for her. But she did tell a friend in passing about the injections, who then told Carol's aunt about them. For Frida, this sent off warning bells because Frank, just prior to his death, had also mentioned in passing that Carol had been giving him injections. She had always thought that Marie's manner at Frank's bedside the day of his death had been pretty peculiar. And so now viewing it in hindsight and watching her niece suffer from a very mysterious similar illness, she alerted Mike, who passed along the info to Carol's treating doctor. So now all of her family is becoming a little bit suspicious. All of these people are having these same symptoms around her and dying. And she's not getting sick. It's just everyone around her. That's right. Because you would think if it was something environmental in your home, you would be getting sick too. Well, they'd even changed homes. Huh. But it was Frank's sister that was like, wait a minute, Marie was giving Carol injections. And Frank told me that he was getting injections. Yeah. And so what is going on here? And so she takes those concerns to Mike. And Mike's now looking back at his parents' relationship and thinking, oh, maybe there were things here that I didn't understand or there was more going on than I knew about. Right. So Mike calls up his sister and says, is mom giving you injections? And at first she says no. But then as Mike persists, she does say yes to him. Huh. And that's not a common thing to have to give yourself injections. No, not when you're already in the hospital. No. Very strange. Yeah, totally suspicious. So I'm glad Mike is starting to wonder what's going on. Mm -hmm. And what kind of mother do you have to have to even start suspecting that? No kidding. It would be very difficult to be in Mike or Carol's position. Yeah, it really would. The doctor also really did not believe that a mother would poison her own child, but was still wanting to rule everything out. So he told Marie that it would be best if she stayed away for a while while he got to the bottom of what was going on with Carol. And he spoke about investigating heavy metal poisoning with her. And if she's kept away, Carol's going to start getting better. That's right. The next day, September 18th, Marie signed Carol out against medical advice, (gasps) using the excuse that she was taking her daughter to another hospital because Marie felt that Carol hadn't improved at all. Carol was so sick, though, that she needed medical attention almost immediately and was readmitted to the University of Alabama Hospital under a new doctor's care on the 19th. Marie purposely omitted the suspicion of metal poisoning in the health history that she provided to the new doctor. Carol's hands were numb, her feet were numb, she had nerve palsy causing drop foot, and she had lost most of her deep tendon reflexes on her initial exam with this new doctor. Whoa. The next day, fate intervened. Police arrested Marie for writing bad checks and other fraudulent activities. Without Marie at Carol's bedside, doctors are now able to examine her completely without interference. They notice, along Carol's toenails and fingernails, that there are white lines across her nails. Oh. A symptom of arsenic poisoning. Preliminary tests on samples of Carol's hair found that she had about 50 times the normal arsenic levels in human hair. (gasps) 50 times? Mm Mm-hmm. Marie, while still being held for fraud, is now under the suspicion of attempted murder of her 19-year-old daughter. Over the next few months, evidence came rolling in against Marie. On September 26, Marie was interviewed for two hours about the suspected poisoning. 
Mostly, she dodged accusations and tried to lay blame and suspicion elsewhere. But with careful questioning, she admitted to giving Carol injections both at home and in the hospital, and that she had given her mother injections as well. But she didn't say what was in them. She's suggesting that it was medicine. Yes. More detailed tests on Carol's hair were conducted on October 3, 1979, by the Alabama Department of Forensic Science. They revealed arsenic levels ranging from over 100 times the normal level, close to the scalp, to zero times the normal level at the end of the hair shafts. This indicated that Carol had been given increasingly larger doses of arsenic over a period of four to eight months. Oh, and that's such a long time to be sick. When you're not even ill. That's a long time to kill somebody over and not change your mind. Yeah, especially your 19-year-old daughter. Mm -hmm. These test results were revealed on the same day that Frank Hilly's body was exhumed for testing. It was actually Mike that requested the exhumation. Oh, he is on to her. Mm -hmm. The analysis revealed abnormal high levels of arsenic ranging from 10 times the normal level in hair samples to 100 times the normal level in toenail samples. As a result of these tests, the cause of Frank Hilly's death was changed and ruled to be acute arsenic poisoning. On October 6, Frida found a medicine vial in an open cosmetic case at Carrie's home in the back room where Marie had kept her belongings during the period she had lived there. It tested positive for arsenic. Later, Frida would find Cowley's rat poison in Marie's belongings. This rat poison was a 1.5% arsenic solution. Just three days later, a vial would be found in Marie's purse that would also test positive for arsenic. Oh, thankfully, her world, it seems, is about to come crumbling down. Well, that's what you would think, but hold on to that thought. What? She is not going to get away with this. On October 25th, Marie was indicted for the attempted murder of her daughter. Just over two weeks later, she was approved for bail for the meager sum of $14,000. Marie's lawyer convinced different friends or admirers to put up the bond. Oh! <gasps> Well, because she's so flirtatious and charismatic that people love her. Mm-hmm. Marie repaid their kindness by promptly running away a week later after staging her own kidnapping. A kidnapping? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this woman, just when I think it can't get any crazier, now she's staging her own kidnapping? She is a little bit of a drama queen. But then you can see why she then escalates to staging her death because that's more dramatic than a kidnapping. That's right. Marie had been staying at the Birmingham Roadway Inn under the name of Emily Stevens, where only her lawyer knew her location. When he came on November 18th for a planning meeting, Marie was gone. In her place, the lawyer found Marie's clothes strewn about, her suitcase lying on the floor, and a purse that had been emptied onto the bed. All that seemed missing was her wallet, credit cards, and checkbook. She took the money. (laughs) Wow. She also left behind a note scrawled on the motel stationery. It read, quote, Lane, you led me straight to her. You will hear from me. Okay, it's not funny, but it is because she's so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. When I hear about people like this, I just think, what would it actually be like to know a person like this? I don't even know how you would keep up with all her stories. How does she even keep up with all her stories? Yeah, I don't know. Sadly, the day that she took off was the same day that Carrie Hilly, Frank's mother, died of cancer. But she was also found to have arsenic in her hair as well. So even her mother-in-law. Yeah, she was just poisoning everybody. The next day, Marie's aunt was burglarized, and her car and some of her clothes were taken. 
In their place was a note that said the car would be found near Gadsden and that the burglar would not bother her anymore. Were they the same size clothing? Yeah. And the handwriting was all the exact same. They knew all of this was Marie. No, it was the kidnapper. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Who wears women's clothing the exact same size. They were able to do handwriting analysis on all the letters that she had sent to all these other men. Right. And match them all up. Huh. On January 11th, 1980, Marie was officially indicted for Frank Hilly's murder. A lot of good that would do, though, because she was already long gone. Over the next several months, even with the FBI looking for her, Marie would just disappear, evading detection. That is, until her drama-filled relationship with John Homan. Whoa. So now we've made a full circle. This is where she comes in as Robbie. Yes. She meets John Homan as Robbie. So we're back at the police station. She's just been brought in as Terry. And she admits that actually I'm Audrey Marie Hilly. When police realize who they've caught, Marie is almost immediately extradited back to Alabama on January 19, 1983. Her bond is more appropriately set for 320000 And this time, nobody comes forward to pay it. No, they already lost their 14000 Yeah. She was charged with the murder of her husband and the attempted murder of her daughter. It took the jury just three hours to come to its verdict. <gasps> Good. Marie Hilly was guilty of murdering Frank and attempting to murder her daughter, Carol. The following day, she received a life sentence for murder and 20 years for poisoning. Surprisingly, Carol stood by her mom. What? Mm-hmm. She believed that her mom must have erred in some way and must not have truly meant to hurt her. <gasps> well, I guess she feels like my mom showers me with all these lavish gifts. She has to love me. I just think she couldn't bring herself to think that her mom could do that to her. Yeah. John also stood by Marie. He what? Actu- yes. He actually moves to Alabama when she's incarcerated to be closer to her. And now he obviously knows this is Marie. This is not Robbie or Terry. That's He knows right. it's Marie. He knows that she's a murderer, but she is just so charming and she has her hooks in him that he is fully committed to her. John. You're going to die of arsenic poisoning if you stay with this woman. Run, right? Yes. Yes. You let her go and you slam and lock that door behind her. That's what I was thinking. But he sticks by her to be betrayed one last time. She has to be so charismatic and so manipulative that her own daughter and then her husband-ish kind of, (laughs) what do you even call him, is standing by her side. Mike is the only one, her son, who is seeing her for who she really is. Right. On June 9, 1983, Marie entered Tutwiler State Women's Prison. And you would think that that would be the last in this twisted case for Marie Hilly. But it wasn't. Despite reports that she talked constantly of escape and had reportedly made plans to break out, she was reclassified in 1985 as a minimum security prisoner making her eligible for passes and leaves from the prison. Stop it. Mm -hmm. What are these cases you keep bringing me where they get these passes and leaves from prison? I hate it. It's so crazy to me. But in late 1986, she started getting eight-hour passes. And after four of these passes went without incidents, Marie was granted a three-day furlough. No way. Can you just imagine her just using her Southern Charm accent on the warden? But on February 19th, she left prison for the last time. And this is a woman who murdered her husband and tried to kill her own child. And has already been on the run for three years. Created 
three other identities that she lived under. Yeah. And they're like, oh, no, she's not a flight risk. When she literally jumped bail. Yeah. (laughs) It's just the oddest thing to me. I wish I could see videotape of her. I want to see her work her magic. It would be something to see. Maybe she's a witch. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe she was casting little rat poison spells on everybody. That to me is almost easier to understand than what's like right in front of us. Well, especially since they knew her MO was to charm people. So don't you think you would be that much more on defense expecting her to try and charm you so you would not be charmed by her? Yeah, her chart should say, do not look her in the eyes. (laughs) It's so true. So on this three-day furlough, Marie met up with John because he's living in the area. He's coming to see her. He is still totally in love with her. The two of them stayed at a hotel for the weekend. And on the final day of the pass, Marie asked for some time alone to visit her parents' grave by herself. John agreed. And they made plans to meet up at a local restaurant for breakfast at 10 a.m. But she's going to skip out on him. Yeah, Marie never showed up. In her place was one of her famous notes. It read, I hope you will be able to forgive me. I'm getting ready to leave. It will be best for everybody. We'll be together again. Please give me an hour to get out of town. Marie wrote about a man named Walter that was taking her out of town and that she would fly to Canada and contact John later. John called the sheriff. Oh, he didn't believe it? He didn't know where she had went, but he had to turn her in and be like, she's not here anymore. I would have thought that he would have totally waited and wanted to meet up with her in Canada. Yeah, he's waited all this time. But John did make the decision to call the sheriff. Good. Thankfully, fate would intervene one last time against her beg Marie. Her fate would be an awful one, but perhaps a deserving one after the prolonged suffering she caused her victims. On a cold and rainy February 26, police were called to a house near Blue Mountain. Underdressed for the weather, soaking wet, bruised and bleeding and half delirious, Marie had shown up at a cabin of a woman she had once known as a child. She said her name was Sellers and that her car had broken down. An ambulance and police were called within minutes, but suffering from hypothermia after being exposed to the elements for several days, Marie lost consciousness and began to convulse. At the age of 53, Marie's heart stopped, and she was later declared dead. What happened? Well, for days she had been walking around in torrential rains and frigid temperatures, and it's really not known whether she actually had an escape plan, and then it failed, or if she thought she could actually brave the elements and sneak back home unnoticed. If her note to John is an indication, she thought she had somebody meeting her that was going to take her to Canada. So Walter didn't show up? Maybe. I would have just assumed Walter was a made-up person. Well, they don't know. So they think that she had been walking out in the wilderness for days. In torrential rains, and she suffered from hypothermia. Which caused her heart to stop. Yep. Yeah, that is a little bit of poetic justice, isn't it? It is because she had to suffer for that many days, right? Yeah. It's not the months and months that her victims had to suffer, but she did suffer. It does seem crazy, though. But even today, people still speculate about what happened. She had those four eight-hour passes for time to plan. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a right ending for her. She had gotten away so many other times. Maybe she really was kidnapped. (laughs) (laughs) I doubt it. (laughs) That would be karma at its finest. She was actually kidnapped and had just escaped. Maybe she was. (laughs) For realsies this time. (laughs) 
It's just such a wild case. It is. I find it ironic, though, that she did head back to Blue Mountain, which was the small town that she was from in Alabama, where her parents were like, no, this town isn't good enough for you. Right. She got her just comeuppance. She did. Or maybe she just wanted a dramatic end to her life. Well, that is true, too. I don't think she wanted her life to end. No. But it's just so fitting that it would end in such a dramatic way to show up on this doorstep in distress and then to pass. Mm -hmm. There are so many things about this case that you could talk about over and over. One of them being that two days later, her children chose to bury her beside Frank, who she murdered. Are you kidding me? Mike agreed? Yeah. Oh, we've seen this happen in other cases and... I just don't feel right about it. When you murder someone, you should not be allowed to be laid to rest next to them. It does seem wrong. I'm putting it out here right now. Someone murders me. Don't bury them next to me. Get them far away. I don't even think they should be allowed in the same cemetery. It does seem so wrong. But that is the case of the attention-seeking, selfish dirtbag Marie Hilly, whose love for money and possessions motivated her to commit truly twisted crimes. She is a dirtbag. Mm-hmm. And so now I want to hear your theory about why she invented a twin sister. Yeah, that is not making sense to me at all. Do you have a theory on it? I do. I think when she originally met John, she was on the run and keeping a low profile. Right. And so Robbie's characteristics were she didn't like to watch TV, which I think probably was because she didn't want him to see the news the news or anything coming across about her escape and she didn't want anybody to recognize her so she kept a low profile but as time went on i think she got more confident and then she wanted to reinvent herself and so instead of like a normal person being like oh i've grown as a person and my likes are changing she as the drama queen she was had to create a whole story about this twin sister And she totally would have known how to mimic all those symptoms of being sick because she had watched people die at her hand from poisoning, which would have made them very, very sick. There was also one report that said that Carol, her daughter, had found a letter in her mom's possession that had been written to Marie by a distant relative saying that she was a twin when she was born and her father, who was a twin, had actually hidden that fact because he had found the separation from his twin too traumatic to overcome. And so he had separated the girls at birth. Huh. It wasn't a very well substantiated story. Now, as Robbie, was there an insurance policy out on her that John was going to be able to collect? Not that I read. Because she was all about the insurance. My bet is that maybe there was an insurance policy on her. She goes and fakes her death. So he could collect the policy, but in order for her to get that money, she's got to come back and be back in his life. Maybe. I never read anything about a policy for Robbie. But she was definitely financially motivated in a lot of her killings. Yeah, she could have totally done that. It'll be interesting to see what our listeners think about this. Yeah, you guys, I don't mean to have laughed so much during this one, but it almost didn't seem real. Like everything that was happening. It was very twisted. And back to an old-fashioned woman poisoning people for financial gain. And the drama. I don't even know that it was all just financial gain with this lady. No, I think a lot had to do with her want for attention. Yeah, I think that's more what it is. Mm -hmm. Well, you were right. That was a wild ride, Melissa. (laughs) And listeners, please let us know what you think about why she invented a twin sister, only to return to a life that she was already living. I wonder if she was planning on leaving... And then actually realized she loved John and missed him. 
maybe. She did say in one of her interviews that she had returned to John because he was her true love. Yeah, because maybe she was planning to leave and then couldn't bring herself to do it and then is thinking, how am I going to go back? And so she'd already invented this twin sister, so why not come back as her? Because even for her, I was surprised when you said she met up with John when she broke out. Her three-day furlough was with John as her supervisor. Oh, okay. But she spent the three days with him. Yeah, she could have gotten a much bigger head start on getting away had she not spent all three days with him. And she's not above murder. She could have killed him and then moved on. True. And left a note that I'm a murderer and I've kidnapped her. (laughs) Not meet me in an hour. No. Okay, listeners, but you've heard enough of what I think. Like Melissa said, go on our socials and tell us what you think of this crazy case. And I'll bring you a new one next week. Until then. See ya. Bye. times you can you use diabolical in like an actual sentence <laughs> when you host a true crime podcast all often. the time <laughs> so gossip isn't always bad well and for john robbie poop pooped up his <laughs> uh, we don't need to know if they're into pooping on each other but not pooping she didn't poop on him no she didn't poop on him she okay. pumped okay we have to get our minds out of this gutter <laughs> Yeah, I have no idea where this is going. <laughs> it's like a soap opera. <laughs> Just... A murder's a murder, <laughs> no matter how small. Mike recalls that after his father was... What does Mike recall? Something about his father. Yeah. Marie Hilly. <laughs> and then like a car comes. Like, this is a gong show today. She does not look like what I thought she was going to no. look like at all. Like, she's not ugly, but she's not... Like, drop-dead gorgeous. No, I was expecting this little smoke show. Yeah. The only smoke is the fire she's setting. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I'm going to say. Apparently she was a model prisoner. Yeah, because she worked her little magic on everybody. They all loved her. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, Warden. I promise I'll come back. (laughs) After I've had four trips to plan my escape. She must have had cherry flavored nips because I don't know what else she did to (laughs) woo all these people. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. 
What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.